1: It's the Media buzz meter with Howard Kurtz. The final numbers are in for 2022 and... Da, 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 we almost broke 4 million downloads on this podcast. The figure was 3.7 million compared to the previous year. We're up one and a quarter million. In just that year, despite the fact that 2021 was an incredibly newsworthy year. I guess you could say 2022 uh, was as well. So I have only this to say. Thank you. And let's keep meeting like this. You know, I happened to be flipping around and I went to The View and I saw the panelists back from the holiday uh, weekend praising Barbara Walters. And I've said a lot about her remarkable career and how I see it and how much I learned from talking to her and, and watching her. Um, but they made a point, Joy... Behar, and Whoopi Goldberg made a point that I hadn't really thought about just in terms of the historical perspective. Which is, at the time that Barbara Walters was becoming, was getting these great ratings and becoming known for these tremendous interviews, like, uh, the ten most fascinating people of the year, you always score big numbers, uh, the annual Oscar show, you got a lot of movie stars, um, it was unusual for those celebs, ...to do anything more than, you know, go on a late night show for five minutes... ...and say, well, let me tell you about my new movie. Today, by contrast, you know, they all have their own brands. They're influencers. They're posting pictures of themselves all over Instagram, Snapchat, you name it. Um, They're out there. And so I think there are many reasons why there could never be another Barbara Walters. The the time that she came into the business, uh, her unique personality... ...how she was able to both sit down with Anwar Sadat and Menachem Begin, but also Monica Lewinsky uh, and many, many others. But in this era of celebrity branding, uh, there probably isn't as much need for a Barbara Walters. And so you don't, you're not going to have a successor. And maybe that's a good thing. Um, People are more in control of their own images. Or you could also say that they're putting out, you know, doctored and, shall we say, airbrushed (laughs) portraits of their wonderful lives. Uh, Speaking of ABC, Robin Roberts has announced that she's getting married. The Good Morning America uh, co-host says that she and her longtime girlfriend, Amber Lane, L-A-I-G-N, will marry this year. She said in a uh, talking to a uh, motivational speaker, I'm hesitating because I haven't said it out loud yet. I'm saying yes to marriage. Uh, Robin Roberts, uh, who I also used to interview quite a bit back in the day, a uh, very lovely person. Um she had first acknowledged having a relationship with Amber in 2013, uh, a time when many many people in the TV business were just kind of confirming what we already knew or suspected. And she said that um in this chat or podcast, um that they were going to get married earlier but she became ill and I had to put it off. So she's saying I am saying yes. To the next chapter, Um, I just wanted to squeeze this in because several outrage cycles ago, it is hard to keep track when you've got to chase all stuff. You know, Donald Trump had a uh, uh, a post that you know started off ripping CNN and MSNBC, but then attacked Fox News. And if Fox News would just you know repeat everything I say about the um, conspiracy to overturn the election in twenty twenty, the numbers would go up. The numbers are going down. Okay, so here's the reality. Uh, as reported by Axios. The first point is a broader one, uh, which is that social media interactions with news articles in the U.S. fell 14% last year compared to 2021. Cable news viewership in prime time, you know, that's where you make the money, fell about 14% on the three main cable news networks. The drop-off beginning after the aftermath, of course, of January 6th. However, when Trump tries to say, uh, well, yeah, you know, Fox numbers are really going down. During that period, and according to Nielsen, the slide in primetime ratings for CNN was 32%. The slide in primetime ratings for MSNBC was 21%. The loss of primetime ratings for Fox News was was 1%. So barely moved the needle. Now, you'd rather grow than be static, but in an environment where people were kind of like, okay, I've had enough of this, and doing other things and tuning out, Fox was stable, 1%. And CNN losing a third of its audience in prime time. Now, look, ratings go up and down, but, um, and I'm sure next year, when we have another presidential election, uh, everybody will be enjoying that. And tuning in. Okay, story number one. And there's no way not to make it story number one. Even though I suspect it's not. People are not gripped on the edge of their seats and watching the television proceedings. But Kevin McCarthy is still not speaker. And neither is anyone else house speaker. Yesterday we had votes four, five, and six. And I have a column today. And it's got a, little, a lot of different threads to it. But in that piece... I say that there's an inescapable conclusion here. Which is that Donald Trump is not influencing Republican members of Congress who like him, who were loyal to him, the way he used to. Remember, there were these 20 holdouts. That number didn't go up. The 20 people who were going against Kevin McCarthy. That number didn't go down. Trump was making calls. And also, you know, has been in touch with McCarthy. And 20 was the number the last time the vote was taken, the third ballot on Tuesday. 20 was the number for ballots 4, 5, and 6 yesterday. So it's hard to conclude anything other than either they don't want to hear from Trump on this or they don't care. Even Lauren Boebert, who said Trump's my president, great president on the floor, said he should tell Kevin McCarthy to withdraw. And, you know, as I've been trying to stre- uh, stress here, it's not about whether you like Kevin McCarthy or you don't like Kevin McCarthy. He got, is getting between 201 and 203 votes. The holdouts, the rebels as I'll call them, that sounds like laying the groundwork for the docudrama, um, have been able to put together 20 votes. So it's 90% versus 10%. And that is a real question because in, in, a, in a sort of a healthy, functioning political party, and I know some people are saying, oh, this is great, get it all out in the open, that's fine. Then we'll come back to the question of how do you ever get these people to yes and what are they fighting about? So that 10%, who McCarthy made even more concessions to, and we'll get to that as well, um, is essentially telling the majority of their party, you know, buzz off. That um, We're going to do what we're going to do. We think this is fine. We think the rest of you are part of the establishment swamp. And we don't care if the House is paralyzed. When I say paralyzed, I mean, they can't do anything. Democrats can't be sworn in. Republicans can't be sworn in. No hearings can be held. No national security issues can be looked at. And I don't know how long it's going to last. I mean, we've gone through government shutdowns that have lasted over the years. Those brinkmanship games that always drive me nuts and everybody else can last two or three weeks. But there at least you have orders for essential personnel to come in. Maybe the House isn't essential personnel, but in any event. Um, So, New York Times puts it this way after two days of chaos and confusion. Republicans have made it absolutely clear who's leading their party. Absolutely no one. Abundantly clear, it said. Um, From the halls of Congress to the shores of Tripoli, no. From the halls of Congress to the Ohio Statehouse to the backroom dealings of the RNC, the party is conducting an identity crisis. Identity crisis. It's time to call in the nation's therapist. Um, even as Donald Trump rarely leaves his Florida home, in what so far appears to be a little more than a Potemkin presidential campaign, the first part is a fact; second part is a s- slam. Republicans have failed to quell the anti-establishment fervor that accompanied their rise to power. Here's Carl Rove, you know, former deputy chief of staff to uh, George W. Bush. Saying the members who began this have little interest in legislating, but are more, most interested, in burning down the existing Republican leadership structure. Their behavior shows the absence of power corrupts just as absolutely as power does. So either you have one person in charge with too much power, or nobody's in charge. Matt Brooks runs the Republican Jewish Coalition. Said the infidels. This is starting to seem more like a. Uh, communist era movie need to pay a real price quote there are elements of us looking like the keystone cops and how much will this stretch into 2024 now uh politico has a piece you know everybody's get, getting these you know it's like when you have one of those thousand word puzzles thousand piece puzzles i should say everybody's on their hands and knees and he' well, here's a piece i think this fits over here um and each little bit tells us something but not necessarily the whole picture anyway Politico says McCarthy's team last night, because what happened is they had the three votes, it was around four o'clock, and I thought, okay, they're not getting anywhere, they'll adjourn and come back today. Instead, they announced they were going to adjourn for dinner and come back at 8 p.m. Eastern. And I thought, okay, I got to stay up tonight and probably be inconclusive, you know, I got to make sure anything I did, the column I filed, the radio commentary I did is still not completely dated. But then they came back, and it seemed like there had been some movements and progress. You could kind of smell it, because they basically agreed just to adjourn, come back at noon today. So, one of uh, the major anti-Kevin types here, Congressman Chip Roy of Texas, said, oh, he's still digesting his most recent conversations. Uh, There's a lot of details here that matter. i got to see what we're even talking about. Uh, What are you even talking about? That's the question. So, the House vote to adjourn was actually the first successful vote for the GOP because they can't, can't do anything else. That sent a signal to some people uh, that maybe the picture is brightening a little bit, hard to say, but that's probably good news, As Congressman Hal Rogers. Uh, Washington Post, okay, has some details here. In a stunning reversal, McCarthy offered lowering the threshold to oust the Speaker from five members to one. A rule the California Republican had repeatedly said he would not accept. Boy, you look at one guy the wrong way and you're toast. It just means there would be a no-confidence vote. Five is bad enough. One, and McCarthy never wanted to do that. I mean, I'm kind of waiting for someone to stand up, you know, rip off their tie and say, you can take this job and shove it. <laughs> um, McCarthy would tap more members of the, of the Conservative House Freedom Caucus to the Rules Committee, which is immense power in the House. Uh, to set the terms of debate, what amendments can be voted on, and so forth. That was first reported by CNN. Um, It remained unclear if the concessions would move the holdouts, but this is the kind of stuff they're asking for. Um, It could be days before a speaker's elected, said one person. Uh, Here's Bob Good, who's a total McCarthy critic of Virginia. It's worth taking a few days or a few weeks to get the best possible speaker. We could be here until the cherry blossoms bloom, says Lauren Boebert. Which would mean late late March, early April. Okay, that's not very encouraging. Um, I don't know what else did these people want. You know, can they ever get to yes? You know, and but but I will say this: the idea that oh, this is such an outrage that some of these people are just concerned about their own personal power and they want seats on the rules committee. It, you know, that's politics, folks. This has been going on since the founding of the republic. And. Horse trading is, you know, part of what greases the wheels of democracy. You know, you can say the, the particular horse trade in question is, is an outrage, but it's not like it's something brand new under the sun. I mean, look, when Alexander Hamilton wanted to get his national bank, then it ended up being a grand compromise to move the nation's capital to the swamp lands of D.C. It didn't really exist as much of a city yet. And so... It would be better for the Republicans if they were arguing about something Americans care about rather than who gets to sit on the rules committee. But nonetheless, the thing is frozen. I I did have the impression, you know, if McCarthy, if more numbers move in McCarthy's favor, he actually lost one member who voted present, um, that that might start the ball rolling. But who knows? He can only lose four. Right now there are 20 against him. He can only lose four. When a fifth representative-elect votes against Kevin McCarthy... Um, he doesn't get the job unless they make a deal. There was also a deal with the uh, very influential on the right, Club for Growth, which basically said, we'll stay out of it. We won't uh, endorse any candidates. We won't primary anybody, in other words. And also, uh, we won't, if you vote for this, we won't score it against you, because a lot of these members like to the constituents 100% backed by the Club for Growth. Um Maggie Haberman, uh, the New York Times reporter who wrote Confidence Man about Trump, said this on CNN uh, and the lack of movement after the former president weighed in. There's an element of a fear factor that's just not present now for Donald Trump with these members. You know, this energy, this House Freedom Caucus energy grows out of the Tea Party, which predates Donald Trump. Donald Trump seized on it. Trump capitalized on it, fueled it, benefited from it, found common cause with these folks. But he didn't create this kind of energy in the House. And I think he believes that he did. I think he believes that these are all just like people who like him and will do uh, whatever he wants. They're not seeing it that way right now. If anything, McCarthy actually lost one vote after Trump issued his support. Now, look, she says, if McCarthy ends up getting a deal and becomes speaker, Trump will claim credit. He'll say he was there all along. If McCarthy loses support, Trump will be quick to support whoever looks like he's going to be the winner because that's how Trump behaves. He goes which way the wind is blowing. Last night with Sean Hannity, probably the most prominent leader now of the anti-Kevin forces, Lauren Boebert, the Congresswoman elect, I guess I technically have to say from Colorado. Uh they went round and round. Boebert, Sean, he, Kevin, needs two eighteen and he does not have two eighteen. Hannity, neither do you. Later Hannity came back. Uh you don't will you give up by Friday if you don't have an alternative candidate? Who can even get 30 votes? Kevin McCarthy does not have 218 votes, she said. And you have 20. I asked you a very specific question. If by Friday you don't have 30, I will not withdraw, she said. With all due respect, he said, if you only have 30, to be clear, you will not withdraw. But you're telling Kevin McCarthy and the 203 people that support him to withdraw because they ha- don't have 218. That's what you're saying? So we're just going round and round. It all comes down to the math. And, you know, whether you think there should be something like majority rule within a political party. It's not like this is, you know, one person has, like going to a convention, one candidate has 2,500 delegates, another candidate has 2,200 delegates, and if you can flip certain people or the undecideds or whatever, you could become the nominee, or maybe you become the running mate of the person who won. But that's not happening here. They, they, They can't seem to come up with a set of demands. No matter how often Kevin McCarthy says, okay, we'll do it. We'll do it your way, whenever you want. Just stop torturing me. Uh, Oh, Trump weighing in again today. He says this is a big Republican victory. Although nothing has really happened. If they're going through numerous roll calls to fail to produce a Speaker of the House has made the position and process of getting to be Speaker bigger and more important than if it were done in the more traditional way. Well, you know, Donald Trump sees everything in terms of television. So if it's wall-to-wall coverage... He's saying it'll be a bigger story when it actually happens. Uh, I'll leave that right there. And then he went on to say that the chaos, well, he didn't use the word chaos, but what's happening in the House Republican caucus, quote, is much like me, again, becoming president after having won big in 2016, gotten many millions of more votes in 2020, but supposedly not winning, big lie, And then winning again in 2024, it'll be bigger than the traditional way. So he's got his whole movie script here. Kevin will be bigger. He'll be bigger. It'll be huge. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust? Or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
1: All right, some other voices here. Why don't we talk about story number two? Dan Crenshaw, you know, he's the Texas congressman who wears the eye patch. He has really gotten furious. And on Guy Benson's radio show, uh, yesterday, I believe, he called the rebels who are preventing anybody from becoming Speaker for now, he called them terrorists. Wowza. And so what he said behind closed doors, according to the Washington Post, telling uh, people who are opposing McCarthy, I'm tired of your stupid platitudes that some consultant told you to say on the campaign trail, all right? Behind closed doors, tell us what you actually want or shut the F up. This is, I understand that tempers are running pretty thin or shut the F up because it's just so far from a traditional negotiation where each side gives a little and you come up with some outcome that both sides don't particularly like but can live with. I don't know about that part. Now, What about President Biden? I mentioned yesterday that uh, he went to Kentucky, and there he was with Mitch McConnell, singing the praises of bipartisanship for this new bridge that will connect a part of Kentucky with Cincinnati. And it was a genuinely bipartisan event, and the infrastructure law, which um, some people used to, that used to be a punchline with Trump because he would always be like, no, well, next week will be Infrastructure Week. They never got to infrastructure, but there was always some scandal or some something Trump did or said that took the focus off it. So, you know, I don't know if people get tired of the, the you know, I'm sure Biden's going to make many more appearances. And let's just talk about this as story number three. I mean, he's obviously gearing up to run. He will come to your state, to your town, do kids bar mitzvah, And he will say, thanks to the Infrastructure Act, we are going to provide X million or billion dollars to rebuild this train station or repair this highway. Everybody likes local projects. Maybe some Republicans will join him at those ceremonies. Some will not. But it's good to have a record to run on. So in story number three, the question is how much momentum can... Joe Biden get of the fact that, because it's not going to pass anything in the next two years, it doesn't matter who's speaker, it doesn't matter whether it's Kevin McCarthy or somebody else, Um, it's basically playing defense now, because unless the Republicans really screw this up, um, they still will be in charge in some form, with somebody as the nominal head of the House of Representatives president took some questions on the fly, and this one kind of surprised me, because the Republicans, it's been a big talking point of theirs, that the border's a mess, and Biden hasn't even gone there. Remember when he went to, I believe, Arizona, and he was asked by a Fox reporter, oh, well, you're in the border state, why not visit the border? Anyway, yesterday, reporter, I believe this was Peter Doocy, are you going to be visiting the border when you head down to Mexico? President Biden, that's my intention. We're working out the details now. And he's going to make a formal announcement today. Um, so whether he goes today or in two weeks, it was really beside the point. And obviously he can't just show up there and talk to a bunch of, uh, border patrol people. He's, if he goes, he's got to take ownership of the problem and saying, here are the five steps we're going to take. Then you've got this whole, you know, return to Mexico, title 42, Trump era law that the Supreme court has left hanging in limbo. But I think maybe they've kind of decided, and I'm not sure this is such a bad decision, um, to confront the border, to not act like the border doesn't exist, to try to get the number of crossings down. Right now, it seems you know pretty easy to cross the border. And, um, you know, sometimes in politics, you try to turn a weakness into a strength, or at least neutralize the weakness. Uh, Biden was also asked about the National Football League and, you know, the peg being DeMar Hamlin, who remains in critical condition, despite some signs of improvement, and they still haven't rescheduled that Buffalo Bills-Cincinnati uh, Bengals game. Uh, Biden said, look, the idea that you're going to have, you got guys that are 6'8", 340 pounds, running for 4'8", 40. The transcript may be mangled there, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, you hit somebody with that kind of force. Not that that's what happened here, but I just think it's, I don't know how you avoid it. I think working like hell on the helmets and the concussion protocols, that all makes a lot of sense. But, you know, it's dangerous. We've got to just acknowledge it. What about the situation in the House? Biden didn't want to say much, but he did say a little bit, uh, a couple of occasions. Uh, Mr. President, are you concerned about the implications of there not being a functioning House of Representatives? Perfectly fair question. Biden, well, obviously I am. In terms of my hat on here, uh, for two reasons. One, it's embarrassing for the country. I mean, literally, I'm not making it up. That's the reality. We have to be able, you have to be able to have a Congress that can function. Actually, he said, to be able to have a Congress that can't function is just embarrassing. We're the greatest nation in the world. How can that be? We've had a lot of trouble with, I'm sorry for the noise, but it must have been near the helicopter. A lot of trouble with the attacks on our institutions already. And then he was asked about, McConnell, he says, look, I've had a relationship with Mitch McConnell for years. And in the Obama administration, when they weren't going to pay the debt, meaning Republicans were having one of these, you know, brinkmanship crises on the debt ceiling, you know, McConnell and I stayed up. And you remember New Year's Eve till late at night to finish it. We've always been able to work together. And that's what he said about that. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. So... This was in the middle of the night for me, but story number four is the funeral of Pope Benedict. And the reason I bring it up, obviously, you know, he was pope for seven years, and a lot of Catholics are mourning his passing, even though we have this extraordinarily unusual situation where there already is a sitting pope. First time in 600 years, as I've noted, uh, that the death of a pope doesn't trigger, you know, a mad scramble and election of another pope. This is the death of the retired pope. So the Wall Street Journal has a piece about why many Catholics were upset about this. I mean, after all, uh, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth was 95 years old, and it was kind of clear he wasn't in great health. So the piece starts out by saying Pope Francis has been the leader of the Catholic Church for almost 10 years, but he's been the only pope in the Vatican just since Saturday, This ends a decade in retirement. The end of the decade of retirement for Pope Benedict helped define the current pontificate. While Pope Francis has already taken a markedly different tact than his predecessor, he may feel freer to do so now. This hadn't occurred to me. Uh, Benedict's presence in smiling and mostly silent obedience to his successor was a reassuring sign to many conservatives of continuity in church leadership. But that made Benedict's occasional public statements all the more influential especially when they indicated divergence with the current Pope's approach on matters including clerical sexual abuse and interfaith dialogue. Francis was trying to avoid any sort of outright split. Um, According to Cardinal Joseph Zen, says the journal, Benedict was a restraining influence on Pope Francis on more than one occasion. He cites uh, Francis' decision in 2020 not to make it easier to ordain Married men as priests. After Benedict defended the tradition of clerical celibacy, so the Pope, it is said, Pope Francis is now free to establish a protocol for retired popes. And you know, he himself has not been in the greatest health. So there's some chatter, speculation, maybe wishful thinking, particularly those on the right who don't like Francis's more tol- tolerant approach, that he himself could step down. In other words, this would become. A modern tradition when the holder of the office, of the, I guess you can't really call it an office, but the person who is the inspiration and the power behind the Catholic Church, uh, feels that he can no longer do the job. And I say he because that doesn't look like a tradition that's going to be broken at all. Um, But it didn't occur to me since since Benedict had been so so low key that he might be a restraining influence. And that now that he has passed, uh, Francis might feel a little bit more free to, you know, you always take incremental steps when you're dealing with, you know, a thousand years of church tradition, a couple thousand years, whatever, um, that he might um, feel less restrained by the guy, by the former pontiff, living in the cottage not far from his cottage. All right, I almost... I considered leading with this. And I said, well, you know, this is not the most important story. I can't lead with it. And I said, well, you know, it's probably the most interesting story today. Uh, unless you want to hear another 25 minutes on McCarthy. Um, <laughs> and then I actually saw it on the New York Times homepage. So I said, okay, everybody's taking this seriously. But I, nevertheless, I saved it for the end because it's a nice way to go out. And yes, don't hit the fast forward button, but it has to do with Harry and, Harry and Meghan. And there's actually news here. Sort of. <laughs> Um, so Harry has a book coming out. He did an, uh, a teaser. He did an interview with Anderson Cooper. Uh, one teaser clip was put, pulled out. He now says in this book that his brother, William, knocked him to the floor during an argument about Meghan Markle, his wife. So now we have actual, an actual physical altercation. It's not just they don't like each other, they're cold to each other, they're pissed off. Um, it, will Harry ever be able to rejoin the royal family even for occasions like the crowning or coronation of his father? But now, you know, next season of The Crown, you've got this scene, right? Uh, in According to the Guardian, which obtained a copy of the book or was given, Harry says in the book Spare That Prince of Wales. Oh, Harry says in the book Spare that the Prince of Wales branded Meghan rude and difficult during a row. That's such a great British word. We were having a row. Harry alleges William, quote, grabbed me by the collar, ripping my necklace, and knocked me to the floor. Hmm. Doesn't sound like a highly functional family, does it? Maybe you ought to give up other the necklaces. <laughs> anyway, Harry says he was left with a visible injury to his back. This argument was in 2019 at Kensington Palace, where he was living. He said William was piping hot when he arranged to try to talk about their relationship. Uh, it turned into a shouting match, as William complained about Megan calling her rude and abrasive. Okay, but... Um, William insisted he was trying to help, and that apparently set Harry off. Uh, Are you serious? Help me? Sorry, is this what you call this? Helping me? Harry says he then poured William a glass of water and said, "I, Willie, I can't speak to you when you're like this. He then said his brother called him another name and then came at me. It all happened so fast. I landed on the dog's bowl. I don't mean to make light of this. It probably was not fun. I landed on the dog's bowl, which cracked under my back, the pieces cutting into me. I lay there for a moment, dazed, then got to my feet and told him to get out. He says William told him to hit him back, but he refused. So his brother left, looking regretful, and apologized. Yeah, should have hit him back. In uh, you know, other things that have come out, um, Harry seems to be saying he doesn't want to go to King Charles' coronation. Maybe he wants to be begged. Harry called his therapist instead of Meghan after the confrontation with his brother. And... Also causing an uproar uh, in the U.K. are these snippets of and teasers of interviews that Harry's doing to promote this book, which is not out yet. I haven't seen it, and even The Guardian seems to only have a, a piece of it. One was in an ITV uh, interview in Britain. Harry says, I would like to get my father back. I would like to have my brother back. Raising the question, who, who's responsible for the split? What what has a better chance of succeeding? The House Republicans making peace with Kevin McCarthy or Prince Harry making peace with William and the palace making peace with Meghan? Uh, then he says in these clips, it never needed to be this way. I want a family, not an institution. It suited the palace to paint him and Meghan as villains. This is from the Anderson Cooper sit-down that... Um, Whenever there was a story involving Harry and Meghan, uh, they would, the Buckingham Palace would leak and plant stories against me and my wife, even though the official stance is no comment. The clips last one minute each, yet predictably have precipitated a tsunami of outrage. Indefatigable columnists have drawn deeply on the well of indignant metaphor and adjective, a well that surely must be close to running dry, given the surfeit of Sussex publicity that has bookended this Christmas. So the tone there seems to be enough already. But well, look, it's juicy stuff. I mean, how long can you keep marketing? You've got the book and you got the Netflix series, but you're basically still marketing your past. Don't you have to do some new things? Maybe some things that would help the public as opposed to uh, recycling every bad thing that you say happened to you at a time when your family has been torn apart. And certainly Harry and Meghan have played a role. And sometimes they come off as whiny and defensive. And sometimes it seems like the palace does have it in for them, and especially Meghan. There, I'm done. We can move on. I hope you have a great day. Uh, Given the numbers we had, tell your friends to subscribe. Back here tomorrow with more Buzzbeater. Listen ad free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad free on Amazon Music. From the Fox News Podcasts
0: Network. I'm Ben Dominich, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast.
1: Subscribe and listen now by going to FoxNewsPodcasts.com.